The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Somebody invite those who are out there, the noisy ones, to, 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 to come right in. Uh, I have a message that may calm their spirits. I don't know, but... Ah, it's Bill Christian. That's the problem. So there... Well, it's been a couple of weeks when, since we've been together. Today we are going to finish out the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, um, I'll stop saying it when you start bringing them. So, but bring your Bibles with you, and we're going to go ahead and finish out this last section of the Gospel of John. So we're going to pick up the narrative at chapter 4. Verse 46, so Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was coming, going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So this fourth chapter of John's Gospel is a very eventful chapter. It's packed full with a great many lessons and some remarkable figures. The chapter begins, of course, with Jesus' encounter of the woman of Samaria, the woman who had been there at the well. We said she was a thirsty woman. She came to draw water that day. Jesus asked her for a drink, but it wasn't Jesus who was thirsty. It was the woman who was thirsty. Not physically thirsty necessarily, but spiritually thirsty. She was a woman who was longing. There was something missing in her life. And she encountered Jesus, and her entire life was transformed as a consequence. As a matter of fact, she became really, in many respects, one of the first Christian evangelists going out and sharing the gospel with others. The very people she had tried to avoid, now she was going back into the town that she might meet them and tell them about this man who was a prophet, this man who had told her everything that she had ever done. And we're told that the whole community came out and met Jesus, and many of the Samaritans believed. So that's how this chapter begins, with this remarkable woman. We said she contrasts very nicely with the person we meet in the previous chapter, and that is Nicodemus who was a very intelligent man, a very powerful man, a very influential man, a man who had everything, and yet he also was spiritually thirsty. 
And we don't know whether or not he ever accepted the offer that Jesus made to him, but we know that this woman did. Well, we talked last time we were together, which was two weeks ago, about how it is that you and I are to follow the example of this woman and how we are to share our faith with others. That evangelism is not an option. I ran into somebody at a recent event and they said, I've noticed that you are gently reminding us that as Christians we have a responsibility to share our faith. He said, for those of us who raised in the Episcopal Church, that was not something that was emphasized. And I get that. I was an Episcopalian too, so I understand the idea that that is not necessarily something that has been emphasized in a lot of the mainline denominations. But the reality is, it is a biblical mandate. The responsibility of sharing our faith is simply an extension of who we are as Christian people. It is not something that we are to hoard or to keep to ourselves. Jesus' last words to his disciples were to go into all the world. It's very interesting. When Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer, and we'll get to that later on in the Gospel of John, the only time really that his disciples ever saw him in intimate communion with the Father, Jesus prays for his disciples, gives them an opportunity to see what he's asking the Father to grant them, but he doesn't ask that they be taken out of the world. Now, that's what most of us want. And if you're a parent, that's exactly what you want for your children. You want your children to be taken out of all of the hostility and the difficulty of the world. We want to protect them. But Jesus doesn't ask that his children be taken out of the world, but that they be protected while they are in the world. That it is their responsibility to be in the world, to be salt and light in the world, to make a difference, to be a light shining in the darkness. And that is precisely what this woman was. And Jesus gives us a great example of how we are to do that. We talked about that the last time we were together. Jesus befriended sinners. He asked questions of people. He was interested in their lives. He wanted to know about them. We can do the same thing. We said that asking questions shows interest. It provokes curiosity. Jesus offered them something relevant for their lives. The Christian life is a relevant life. It's not just pie-in-the-sky ethereal theology. No, there's, there's practical implications of this faith for you and for me. In a hopeless culture, Christianity brings hope and encouragement and joy. And we said that Jesus always stressed the fact that the message that he was bringing was a message of good news. Now, you're going to hear uh, something uh, slightly different from that in the sermon today um, because we're hearing from John the Baptist, and it's a message of repentance, but even when Jesus preached that message of repentance, and incidentally, his message was the same as John the Baptist, just a few chapters later in that same gospel where Jesus is preaching for the kingdom of God, he preaches exactly the same message as John the Baptist preached, one of repentance. But it was repentance that we might find eternal life. So it was always a message that while it had a, an element of repentance in it, an element of turning away, was always turning not from something, but to something, to something wonderful. So Jesus stressed the good news, and he always pointed people to himself, and that's what we are called to do as well. Well, this chapter now finishes out with Jesus' encounter with one more person. We had the woman at the well at the beginning. Now we come to Jesus and the healing of the official son, and that's where we're going to pick up the story today. This is described as the second of Jesus' miracles or signs in the Gospel of John. Now that's kind of interesting that Jesus is described as having performed this second sign. 
only because we already know from John's narrative that Jesus had been performing any number of signs and wonders. In fact, that's one of the reasons why this nobleman here, beginning at verse 46, comes to Jesus. Because he's heard about Jesus. He's heard of Jesus by reputation. Uh, Jesus had been down in Judea, that is the area around Jerusalem. He'd been performing signs and wonders, miracles, healings, that sort of thing. And his reputation had spread far and wide. So when Jesus returns to Galilee, there is this wealthy man, this noble man, this official, whose son is sick, and he's heard about Jesus. He's heard what Jesus can do, and he goes to the Lord to ask a favor. So John has already indicated to us that Jesus has done a great many other miracles. So why is this described as the second of his signs? Well, if you read the text clearly, it comes out very well. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. You'll recall that was the first of Jesus' miracles at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death." When you get to the end, it says this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. In other words, this was the second miracle that Jesus had performed in Galilee. Not the second of his miracles, but the second that he had performed in Galilee. Now, I have pointed out to you before that John makes it very clear that he is not including in his gospel everything that Jesus did. In fact, you get to the end of the gospel, and he makes it clear why he's written this biography of Jesus. He said, Jesus did many other signs and wonders that are not recorded in this book. In fact, he says, if they were all to be recorded, the world could not contain the volumes. He said, but these have been written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is telling us very clearly he's being selective. He knows that Jesus is out there doing a great many extraordinary things, but he's being selective. He is choosing just a few of the things that Jesus did to highlight them. And that should be a tip-off to us. That each one of these particular miracles are meant to teach us a specific lesson. So we talked about the first miracle the changing of the water into wine. That was a very joyous occasion. They ran out of wine. That was an embarrassment in the first century. Joy was a symbol of wine. The rabbis used to say, where there is no wine, there is no joy. And that was, you know, Episcopalians, Anglicans love that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, we, our attitude is where two or three are gathered, there's always a fifth. So this is, this is you know, <laughs> we like that miracle, the first of Jesus' miracles. But it was an occasion where the joy was running out. And what did Jesus do? He supplied the joy. He supplied the wine, the best wine. He produced an enormous amount of wine for these people. But now we're given the second miracle. The fact that this is described as the second miracle is so that we might contrast it with the first miracle. And that's the key, really, to understanding what John is trying to convey here. He's being selective in his material. He's describing this as the second 
sign that Jesus performed in contrast to the first. In fact, he makes reference to the first. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. So we're to see these two miracles that John has selected side by side. And it's only in doing so that we really glean the real importance of them. So this is a miracle that takes place in Galilee. That is the region to the north. Judea was to the south. Jesus had gone down to Judea. He was passing back to Galilee when he went through Samaria. Samaria was that swath of land between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. Jesus is returning to Galilee from the lower Jordan in the first miracle. He'd been down there where John the Baptist was baptizing. In this miracle, Jesus returns to Galilee from Judea going through Samaria. So this is the second time he's come back to Galilee. When you look at these two miracles side by side, and incidentally, John never describes them as miracles. He always describes them as signs. That is to say, something that points to a reality greater than themselves. When you view these two side by side, you'll notice that there are a number of striking similarities. First of all, both miracles take place on the third day. That's a harbinger of the things to come, because the greatest miracle of all happens on the what? The third day, and that is when Jesus is, of course, resurrected. So both of these miracles, incidentally, happen on the third day. You see that in John chapter 2 and in John chapter 4. Both miracles, interestingly enough, are performed at a distance, you know, it was often the case when somebody was sick, they would come to Jesus and he would lay there, his hands on them. Or he would come to the mouth of the tomb where Lazarus was. Or he would even make, on one occasion, a little salve made of spittle and dirt and apply it to a man's eyes that he might see. But in both of these miracles, what is interesting is that Jesus performs the miraculous thing from a distance. You remember in the first miracle, his mother came to him and she said, they've run out of wine. And he said, well, this has nothing to do with me. And she turns to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you. And we're told that Jesus told them to take the stone water jars that were huge jars, four or five feet tall, filled with water. He said, take them to the master of the feast. And we're told that as they were taking the water jars, the water in them miraculously transformed into wine. But Jesus didn't even lay his hand on the vessels. He didn't even touch the water. He simply gave the command to the servants, and it was in the process of obedience, a process of obeying the command, that the water was turned into wine. Interestingly enough, it's precisely the same thing here. This man comes to Jesus because his son is desperately ill. If you've ever had a child who has been desperately ill, you know what a terrible feeling that is. Your whole life is one of angst. Even if your child is not terribly ill, but you've been a parent, you know what that's like. You would willingly trade places with them. And think of all the advances that we have in medical science today. Imagine what it would have been like in the first century when medical science was so primitive. This man comes to Jesus in desperation. And he says, come to my house. Come see my child. And Jesus did do that on occasion. You'll recall with Jairus' child, daughter of Jairus, Jesus went with Jairus. 
And he actually took the little girl by the hand and he said, Talitha Kume, little girl, I say to you, get up. And we're told that the blood began to course through her body. The heart was beating. The body began to warm. And all of a sudden, the little girl sat up. This is what this man is asking. And Jesus said, go your way. Your child is healed. He doesn't go with the man. He says, you just go home. Both of these miracles take place on a third day. Both of them, what? Are done at a distance. Both of them, I should have mentioned this, involve an initial rebuke. In the case of the first miracle, it was a rebuke of Mary, wasn't it? Now, it was a mild rebuke, to be sure. But it was nevertheless a rebuke. His mother comes to Jesus and she says, look, they've run out of wine. You need to do something about this. And he turns to her and he says, woman, can you imagine saying that to your mama? I just, (laughs) but it was actually a title of respect in the first century. But he, he turns to her and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. In other words, my time to be revealed as the Messiah has not yet come. But Mary's persistent. She doesn't take no for an answer. She simply turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. And they're probably standing there looking, well, what, 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 he's already said he's not going to do it. And she said, well, I'll take care of that. <laughs> and sure enough, but an initial rebuke. You'll notice there is an initial rebuke here as well. This man comes to Jesus and he says, my son is at the point of death. Come down and heal him. And Jesus' response is this, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's an initial rebuke, probably aimed just as much as the crowds around him as it was at the man. But it was Jesus' way of testing this man to see whether or not he was simply a curiosity seeker. So there are a number of similarities here. Both the third-day miracles, both involve an initial rebuke, both performed at a distance. In both miracles, the servants possess a unique knowledge of what had happened. It was the servants in the first miracle who were the first to recognize that the water had been transformed into wine, and it was the servants who were the first to recognize the healing of the boy because they come and they meet their master on the way and they say, your son is recovering. And that's when the master asks, well, when did it happen? At what point? And he realizes it was the seventh hour, the very hour when he had his appointment with Jesus. So great similarities here. And both of these miracles end with people putting their faith in Jesus. We're told in the first, it was the servants who believed in Jesus, even before the disciples. And in this instance, it is the man who believes. The man, and look at this, his whole household. That's a good practical lesson for us. You know that God sometimes will call one member of a household into faith because that is the means by which he calls others as well. That's important for us to remember because sometimes we all want to be great evangelists. We want to be great champions for the gospel. 
But sometimes God is calling us that we might be the instrument by which somebody who is even more effective is called. I've thought about Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a remarkable figure. He preached to more people than anyone in all of history. Did you know that? More than anyone who has ever lived, Billy Graham preached to more people the message of the gospel than anyone else who's ever lived. But think about the person who led Billy Graham to faith. Because whoever led Billy Graham to faith is also part of that story of leading millions of others to faith as well. So your role may not be as large and as exciting as someone else's, but it doesn't mean that it is not essential. So there are a number of similarities in these stories. There's one profound difference. What's the difference? The circumstances. The first miracle is an occasion of great joy and happiness. The second miracle is one of potential disaster. It's, it's sickness. It's sickness that apparently is leading to death. You know, life is not always, even for Christians, easy. The book of Job says, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. We all know this. We don't like to think about it, and we'll do everything we can to sort of suppress it and not think about it. But the reality is this. Life can be hard. It is filled with disappointments, and it does not matter who you are. It does not matter where you come from. Sooner or later, you're going to face disappointment. You're going to face sorrow. You're going to face loss, and you are eventually going to face Death. Now, as I said, in our culture, we do everything we can to distract ourselves from it. And I don't want to belabor the point because we know it's bad enough as it is. But it's important for us to recognize that. Coming to Jesus is not going to make you immune from trouble or difficulty or sorrow. Jesus himself told his disciples, in this life, you will have tribulation. He didn't say in this life, you may have tribulation. It's likely you're going to have tribulation. He was emphatic. If you live long enough, you're going to have it. And yet I think that's really important. Because what it tells us is that Jesus Christ is present in times of great joy. But Jesus Christ is also available to you in times of great sorrow. He's available to you whether you're rejoicing and on top of the world or whether you are in the depths of despair, Jesus Christ is there for you. He was there for those who were celebrating. He was there for those who were in fear for the loss of their child. He was in the midst of both circumstances. Here's something else to know. This man's faith in the bleakest of circumstances. He is described here in the English Standard Version as a nobleman. But really, the Greek word is an interesting word. It is the word basilikos, from which we get the word basilica. And it literally means a ruler. Now, it's a different word than the word that was used to describe Nicodemus a chapter earlier, where it said that he was a ruler of the Jews, and that meant that he had authority. But the term basilikos denotes royalty. 
which probably means one of two things. Either this man was some sort of petty king, and there were lots of those running around in the first century, but because this is a Jewish context, probably it means that he is an official in the court of Herod. But whatever he was, he's powerful. He's wealthy. We're told he has servants. You do realize that in the first century, there was no middle class. The idea of the middle class is a relatively new thing. It's only appeared, really, in the last two centuries. And, incidentally, it's the consequence of Christianity, raising people in their status and in their position. But in the ancient world, there were two classes of people. The wealthy and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, and there was basically no one in between. So this is a powerful man. This is an influential man. This is a man who can provide for himself, but not this time. All his power, all his money cannot heal his child. And so he comes to Jesus. Now, you could be cynical about this and say, well, he came to Jesus because he was desperate. I mean, we all know that the Jewish religious officials were not always friendly to Jesus. So why is this guy coming to Jesus? He's probably coming because he's tried everything else. Do you remember the story of the woman who had the bleeding disorder? Takes us back to the story of Jesus healing of another child, raising of another child, Jairus' daughter. I mentioned it earlier. You'll recall that Jesus was approached by this man who was a ruler of the synagogue, similar to this fellow here. He comes and he says, my daughter is at the point of death, come and heal her. Now on that occasion, Jesus agrees to go with Jairus. But while they're making their way toward Jairus' house, do you remember what happened? They got waylaid. There was a woman. They were going through a crowded street. I, I imagine like going through the market down here in the height of tourist season when it's just packed wall to wall with people, and we're told that this woman who had this chronic bleeding disorder, and it said she had suffered for many years under the care of doctors. In other words, she had gone to everyone for help, and we're told that as Jesus was passing through this mob of people, she reached out and touched the hem of his cloak, thinking, if I could just touch the hem of his cloak, I'll be healed, and she was. But we're told that Jesus felt the healing power go out of him, and he turned around. Imagine somebody turning around in the middle of the market. Today, we'd be very anxious about this sort of thing. Turning around in the middle of the, uh, the market and saying, who touched me? You can just imagine the, the anxiety and the fear in, in, in our culture, what, what would happen. And I imagine that, that Peter and Andrew and James and John and the disciples who were with Jesus said, what in the world are you talking about? Calm down. Be quiet. Everybody touched you. What do you mean? But Jesus knew that someone else had touched him in a different way, touched him in faith. Touched him in faith. And it was that faith that made all of the difference. She didn't have a great deal of faith, but she had enough faith to know that if she touched him, she would be healed. Sure, she came in desperation. But you can come to Jesus Christ in desperation. For many of us, that's the time we really do come to him. When we need him. And that's something else to notice here, that both of these individuals came in desperation. The woman came in desperation. This man came in desperation to Jesus. Would he have gone to Jesus under any other circumstances? Perhaps not. 
But he knew that in desperation he could go to Jesus. And he makes a plea. He may only have faith the size of a mustard seed, but it's enough faith. Folks, it's not the amount of faith you have. It's where you place your faith. I think I probably told you this story before. Some years ago, when I was interviewing somebody for a job um, in my last parish, he was a seminarian, graduating from seminary at the time, and he was at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin. And I had to go up there to interview him, and it was February. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Neshota, Wisconsin, or anywhere around there in February. You've heard the expression, hell has frozen over? Well, that was quite literally the case, I think. But I had to take him out to dinner. It was a cold, bitter winter up there in Wisconsin, just miserable. And um, I uh, said to him, when I went up to interview him, I said, just pick a restaurant, a nice restaurant, and we'll go out with your family, and we'll have a conversation, and we'll see whether or not this is a fit. And so he picked this very nice restaurant. When we got there, um, we were, it was just packed. It was a mob scene. There were, there were cars everywhere, and there were people parking cars. And I drove up to this man who was wearing the orange vest and had a flashlight. It's in the evening, you know. And uh, I rolled down the window, and um, I said, where should I park? And he said, just follow that car in front of you, and you can go out and park on the lake. Now, I was wearing a clerical collar, so I thought he was thinking, you know, I could walk on water or something. I, I said, what do, you, what do you mean, park on the lake? He said, we park cars on the lake all the time. It's no big deal. We, you know, this is, this is what we do up here. And I thought to myself, I don't know about parking on the lake. But I'm seeing cars drive out there, and I'm thinking to myself, well, it's a rental, so what the heck. So... <laughs> And I went out, and I parked on the lake. And I don't mind telling you, the whole way through dinner, I'm thinking to myself, I hope that car's going to be there when we finish up. And it was. Now, that's an example of someone not having a great deal of faith. I did not have a whole lot of faith in that ice. I had faith the size of a mustard seed. But it wasn't the amount of faith. It's where I placed the faith. And that's the case here. This man may not have had a whole lot of faith in Jesus. He hardly knew him. All he knew him was by reputation, and he knew that people like him really had nothing to do with Jesus. But in desperation, he came to the Lord. If you are ever in a desperate situation, that's where you should go. And never think, well, I can't go because I'm desperate, and I've never gone to him before. Jesus welcomes those who come to him in desperation. They are normally among the first to recognize. But Jesus doesn't want our faith to remain the size of a mustard seed. He wants to grow it. And that's why he tests this man. This man comes to Jesus in desperation. His child is at the point of death. He needs help. He's gone everywhere else. Nobody has been able to help him. He comes to Jesus, humbles himself, comes to the Lord, and the Lord's response to him is, as I said, an uncharacteristic rebuke. You people only come to me when you want something, basically. You want to see a sign. You want to see a wonder. You want to see a miracle. Is that why you come to me? But I want you to notice what the man does. The man doesn't get defensive. It would have been easy for him to do so, given his circumstances, given the fact that he was a noble man, given the fact that he was of a, a royal character. 
But what does he do? He simply stands his ground. And he simply repeats his request. Please come. The prayer of the righteous availeth much. Don't give up praying. Be tenacious. This man was tenacious. And the result was that Jesus did what? He says, go your way. Your child is healed. Now, here's the other element of faith. It's not only tenacious. It's not just the size of the faith. It's where you place the faith. Faith also trusts. That's the essence of faith. You'll notice this man doesn't say, no, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I, I can't. I want you to come with me. I want you to come with me. Jesus said, you go. Your child is healed. If I had been that man, I would have said, well, can't you come with me? Hey, look, how much do I have to give you for you to come with me? He doesn't do that. He takes Jesus at his word. He trusts that when Jesus spoke the word, it would come to pass. And that's exactly what he does. He goes his way. In fact, he not only goes his way, he does something really interesting. We're told that he did not return home until the next day. Presumably, he was going somewhere on business, heard that Jesus was in the area, and went to Jesus out of desperation. But he still had business to attend to. He had come 25 miles, we're told. That's a four-hour journey. It's not all that long. But he did not return home until the next day. His encounter with Jesus was the seventh hour. That is the middle of the day, which meant he could have made it home by evening. But he did not. He took Jesus at his word took Jesus at his word to such a degree that he went on and did his business and then headed home and apparently with very little anxiety because his servants come out to meet him on the road and they say, don't worry, your son has been healed. And he said, yes, and when did it start? Tell me the hour. And they said it was the seventh hour and the man knew. The man knew. That was the time when he had met with Jesus. And we're told that he believed he and his whole household. Now, what's the second miracle designed to teach us? Well, it's designed to teach us a number of practical lessons. First of all, what we notice is that Jesus has been at this point in the Gospel of John, we're just through the fourth chapter, with all sorts of people in all sorts of places. He's been with people in times of great joy, and he's present and he's welcome in times of great joy. But he's also been with people in times of great sorrow and desperation. And he's willing to meet their needs and to answer their requests. Jesus has been with Jews. And he's been with Samaritans. That is to say, he's been with the chosen people. And he's been with those who are the outcasts. He's been with people who are of low estate, and here he is with a nobleman, a person of high estate. It teaches us that Jesus is willing to meet all sorts and conditions of men and women, regardless of their circumstances. You can be educated, you can be ignorant, and Jesus Christ will meet you where you are. You can be poor, you can be wealthy, you can be influential. You can be insignificant, 
But whoever you are and whatever your circumstances, the point that John is trying to convey here is that Jesus Christ is willing to meet you where you are. And you can come in desperation to Jesus Christ. You can come with only an ounce, a grain of faith. And Jesus Christ will take that faith and he will grow it into something that will absolutely change your life and make you, like the woman in the first part of this chapter, a blessing to others. But the point is, you must come to him. You must come to Jesus Christ and you must come in faith. And you must acknowledge him. And you must trust him. You know, this man had to trust Jesus. And sometimes that's a difficult thing for us to do. But my friends, God has proven himself trustworthy. He's been faithful in the past. That's why I remind people that Christianity is an historical religion. It is based upon events that have actually happened in time and space. And it's because God has been faithful in the past, we know that we can trust him regardless of what the future holds. You've heard me say many times before, quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we do not know what the future holds, but we well know who holds the future. So wherever you are today, Jesus Christ bids you to come to him. Maybe you're rejoicing. Maybe you've had some wonderful news. Jesus Christ wants you to come to him and share that. He wants to share your joy with you. Maybe you're perplexed, going through a period of doubt. Jesus Christ wants you to come. Maybe the only faith you have is the faith, the grain of the size of a mustard seed. Jesus Christ wants you to come and place that little bit in him. Again, it's not the matter of how much faith, it's where you place it that makes all the difference. Maybe you are in a time of great sorrow. Maybe you've received some bad news. Maybe somebody you know has been lost. Whatever the circumstances, Jesus Christ bids you come to him and the promise is that he will in no way ever, ever cast you out. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these two people in this fourth chapter of John. We thank you for that Samaritan woman at the well who came to your son Jesus and was thirsty and found that she could be perfectly satisfied by coming to know him and to know his salvation. We thank you for this nobleman at the end of this story who came, no doubt, in desperation, fearful, anxious, heart beating out of his chest for love of a child and came to Jesus in desperation but who found that Jesus was able to meet his need just as he met the need of that woman, just as he met the needs of the people at the wedding feast. Father, help us to know that we can always come to Jesus when there is nowhere else to turn. Get us into the habit of turning to him. We might find everything that we need and more. It's in his name we pray. Amen.